All right, welcome back to Pedagogy Non Grata. Um, today, I'm really excited to be finally interviewing um, Jeremy Noonan. Um, and Jeremy and I have been trying to schedule an interview together for about a month now. I became really interested in his work after he uh, wrote an article on the subject of why evidence-based education isn't actually popular within the education system. Um, so unfortunately, right as I was trying to contact him, I was also um, moving and working really crazy hours, as I, I previously mentioned on the podcast. And I think uh, Jeremy himself is also extremely busy because, you know, he's uh, he has kids and he's working on a PhD, which from everyone I know who's done one is quite a crazy experience in itself. So I'm really glad to, to finally have Jeremy on the podcast. Um, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I have an education background. Well, I have, first of all, I, was, I studied engineering in college, but got interested in education. So I have a background teaching science and also teaching um, theory of knowledge for the International Baccalaureate program, which is like a critical thinking philosophy for those that aren't familiar with that. Um, so that's my teaching background. And the last few years, I've been homeschooling my children through, through the middle school years for my two oldest older children. And we've been using kind of a classical model of education in our homeschool curriculum. So I've been doing that while staying at home full time. And I decided I had enough margins um, in my schedule to work on a PhD. So I started doing that as well. And so now I'm doing a PhD uh, in education through Leicester, University of Leicester in the United Kingdom. And also of interest, as you mentioned, me writing for the Fordham Institute. So I do that. I've ended up doing that a few times a year since 2016. I've written uh, 10 or so articles for them. And so it's it's not a I'm not a regular contributor per se. It's just kind of I do it just as it comes to mind as the ideas come. But I do have a close relationship with them and have um, been able to enter sort of the education policy world and conversation through writing for them. Yeah, it's uh, it's. A funny thing, writing an article, I've written a few articles myself, and it you always see, feel like you have so much to say, but uh, the actual process of putting something out that you're going to publish is a lot different than just, um, you know, quickly putting something together, right? It's a long process. Sure. Well, it's, it's long in an ironic way because what takes a long time is condensing it. Yeah. Right, I so... When you're writing for something that's primarily web-based, they want it to be typically a thousand words or less, and so it's really challenging. It's it's not hard to write over a thousand words. You know, I could do that in an hour, an hour and a half. But it's actually getting down to just a thousand words, choosing the best words that you want to say to convey your point. That's the real hard part. Yeah, I agree with you there. I find it's it's sometimes it's hard to be as direct in what you're trying to express in a simplistic way. Um, I'm really interested with something you said here. It's not something we're planning to talk about, but you said you're you're educating your students or your children, sorry, in a, a classical way. Uh, what do you mean by that? Yes. Yeah. So um, it's based on so this classical model of, of education that is part of a Western tradition that um, is organized around the idea of the tritium, which is grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And so the basic idea is that uh, in the elementary school years. They're at the grammar stage of learning, which is primarily the absorption of facts um, and language. Mm -hmm. And then in the middle school, adolescent years, they're, they're focused on the logic stage of learning, which is the logical structure of the disciplines. So I've been like at the logic stage with my children, like thinking, teaching them to think critically and to think about. And then the, the, in the high school years, they enter what's called the rhetoric phase, where they're learning the arts of persuasion um, and speaking well. 
um, in various disciplines. So we're not quite there yet, but that's that's generally what's meant by classical education. You know, it's funny. I've never heard that um, model proposed before, but I actually think uh, it makes a lot of sense. I, I I believe something similar. I think there's been a lot of um, focus in recent years on doing inquiry-based learning at an earlier age. And I'm really under the impression personally that at an early age, students need more direct instruction and more um, basic facts. Yeah. Um, they do. And I, I, but I, yeah. right now I teach intermediate and I, I also find that they, they really need to be trained in how to critically think at this age more than anything else. Intermediate means middle school in your context. Yes, it does. Yeah. Great. So, okay. well, currently I'm teaching right. grade six so and seven. So that's when there, it's not that they can't think logically when they're younger, but you're right. Their minds are, are made for absorbing facts. And so direct instruction is what's most appropriate and they can acquire the fact. Cause I mean, the one thing the research which shows is that critical thinking doesn't work without a content base. So if you try to if you try to teach critical thinking divorce of, of a deep factual, deep and broad factual knowledge base, it's not going to work because there's nothing to act on. There's nothing to think on. So they need that in the early years for sure. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, and I, I I think that's not actually the most popular trend, at least where I am teaching currently. I don't know if that's something you've noticed where you are. No, I mean, they've, they've completely changed the science standards to make it inquiry based from kindergarten onward. And while the, while the aspirations are good, you know, my thought is the, the students cannot recreate the history of scientific discovery in 12 years. Yeah. Like they just can't. Uh, they're not going to, they're not going to do experiments and arrive at the, at the same conclusions as, our, as 300 years of scientific tradition or more in the West has done. There's just some things that simply have to be told. Are true, and there's there's a way in which the experiments can can access. Of course, experiments are part of science education, but the idea that they're going to through inquiry and observation that they're going to arrive at the correct conclusions um, of everything they need to know about science is really, I think, it's foolish. And they end up not learning a lot of scientific facts in the early years, which hurts them later when they try to do advanced science. No, I I actually I 100% agree with you. I I think this applies to to other subjects too. I think it applies to English and math in the sense that. Um, Sometimes I think there's too much focus in the early years put on um, reading comprehension before students actually know how to read. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. There becomes this idea that, well, we can do that orally or we can focus on these two things equally at the same time. But, you know, if students don't have their basic decoding skills down, I don't think it makes sense to be asking them, well, what is the uh, theme behind a story? Um, right, exactly. Yeah, I've, I've become more keen on that since reading Natalie Rexler's book um, called the, the, you know, the Knowledge Gap, which is about the, not just not just the phonics, but about the lack of content knowledge in, in uh, teaching reading comprehension. Yeah. Well, we're... we're... A daughter that is, I have a daughter that's in third grade, mm-hmm. and she is not homeschooled. She's at a typical public school. It's a Title I school, dual language I started noticing like these abstract reading comprehension skill worksheets that she takes home, and that you're right. Like it's like some of the money makes sense. Like you can't compare and contrast this passage if you don't understand the knowledge that's in this passage. Just being able to do it in the abstract it doesn't make sense. And I mean, she, her decoding skills are are pretty decent, but you're right. Like they they I have just seen the ways in which they try to um, teach reading comprehension in the app. Yeah. Now I don't know. So, Wexler's work. Yeah, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Uh, there's a big movement here called uh, developmentally appropriate practice, 
which sounds like a really great buzzword, but it, it it's almost counterintuitive. It's been a movement not founded by um, education scientists, but by teachers on the idea that we should have more inquiry-based at the younger age because it'd be more developmentally appropriate and more content-based at the older age. Um, and and the, we don't actually have a lot of evidence in the scientific studies, to my knowledge, studying this, but from what I have seen, the evidence seems to be in direct contrast to that idea. Yeah, and, and, and that's the reason why that, that tradition is so important in education. So back in relation to our, the classical model that I described to you, I mean, there's only so much you can prove in an evidence-based study. There's only so much that you can prove because we don't know the long-term effects of things. So you know, what we've done is we've thrown away the wisdom of tradition and we've tried to make everything based on what we can scientifically prove. But we can actually scientifically prove very little. And so there's a vacuum there, and the vacuum just ends up getting filled with something else that largely ignores tradition and substitutes traditions for people's own prejudices and their own ideologies. So, I mean, going... Going back to the unknown, that inquiry-based learning is not actually appropriate for little children. Young children, what's needed is, is facts and content. So that's not that's that was known before it was ever proven in research. That's been known throughout throughout the millennia. But because we've unmoored ourselves from tradition and discounted tradition as a valid source of knowledge, there's this huge vacuum, and and the research just can't, can't fill it. And so people just end up doing what they want to do ideologically. So you get this sort of idealized notion of childhood that goes back to the you know the romantics of the, of the 19th and 18th century, and this ideal idealized notion of childhood has them as being these free thinkers and free learners that are just willing to follow. Just you let them follow their impulses and they'll learn. A divorce from any kind of authority or structure or content. So I think that's where you get these poor practices from. Yeah, I agree. Although I think that there has been, I think personally, I. I... I think some of this is a backlash to this idea that maybe education is has been traditionally too authoritarian, too much focused on rote learning and memorization. And I think a lot of people have come out of school with this understanding and impression that school was this unpleasant place, and then they became teachers in the hope of maybe changing that. Um, but I think sometimes we've... And I think sometimes there's merit to that idea, but at the same time, I also think that Sometimes the idea that there's been so much focus on change for the sake of change that we haven't really thought about, well, what's actually best for student learning. Sure. You know, G.K. Chesterton said, if you want to start taking fences down, you should ask why they were put there in the first place. And so you do have this change for the sake of change that's this, this sort of arrogance with respect to the past. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. Where we think that just because something is old or traditional, it's, it's, we hold it in, in which hold it within suspect, right? And then, so we ended up change, trying to change everything to make it fun or to make it novel or to make it modern. And we end up losing a lot of traditional wisdom, you know, in the process. And, I mean, nobody likes rote memorization, but that's, that's the thing. It's not, memorization doesn't have to be rote. Memorization doesn't have to be boring. It can be interesting and engaging and joyful. But the opponents of memorization, and really it's the opponents of teaching by authority, the opponents of that want to make it sound like it's boring and it's negative and it's stultifying. And they don't want to admit that it can actually be joyful and freeing. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I, I use a lot of um, memorization in my own classroom. And, and my students, uh, I find they actually, they like it. Um, because I think they find the expectations are really clear. They understand what they're supposed to be learning. 
um, and they right. find it really easy right. to meet those expectations because they just know, well, okay, well, I have to learn how to do this type of math, for example. The teacher has laid it out very clearly in front of me. I just need to practice until I get it. Mm-hmm. I think they kind of find it freeing, to be do honest. Do you teach multiple subjects? Yes, I do. I am, uh, so right now, my actual, my, my uh, training has been as a history English teacher, but um, right now I'm actually teaching grade six and seven, all subjects, except okay. French. All right. So let's, let's, uh, we got off track here talking, just chatting here. Um, why don't I, I go back to some of your questions here. Uh, you're currently working on a, a PhD. What is your thesis work focused on? Yeah, so um, I'm looking at the influence of personal, what I call personal knowledge um, on how educators, specifically administrators, decision makers, use evidence in their decision making. And so personal knowledge um, includes things like ideological commitments, uh, philosophical ideals, moral values, and these factors, they inevitably form the judgments that we make in data. So whenever we use data, we have to decide which data is worth paying attention to in the first place, um, whether the data is good, good quality, whether it's valid, whether it's reliable. So those, those, those sort of judgments are influenced by these personal factors. Now, it's fairly well established in the empirical research on evidence views that these are always at play when educators engage with data um, to inform their decision-making and that they form an interpretive framework or lens which data is interpreted and evaluated. So that's a pretty well-established understanding. But I'm also looking at it through a fresh theoretical lens. Um, I'm using the epistemology of a a 21st century philosopher of science named Michael Polanyi, who was known to, who was a predecessor of Thomas Kuhn and who influenced Thomas Kuhn um, directly. Um, The second part of the research is that uh, it's, it's been widely observed in the literature that Philosophical discourse in schools um, is largely absent, um, and when it does occur, it's quite shallow and stilted. So you have these ideological and moral influences that exist as an undercurrent, and they shape profoundly educational decisions. Hardly anyone is talking about them in a meaningful way or knows how to talk about them in a productive way. And of course, if you don't talk about these influences, you can't really critically evaluate them. And if you don't critically evaluate them, you're not going to really improve them. And so consequently, you get a lot of flawed ideology that ends up driving decisions. And this flawed ideology can stand in the way of using best evidence-based practices. Yeah. Um, it's, it it's almost sounds like you're talking about cognitive dissonance within the education system. Would you say that's fair? I would say that's fair. I do use that, that phrase in my Fordham article that you mentioned, that there is cognitive dissonance between what the – well – there's a lot of cognitive distance between what the best evidence-based practices, you know, are or what the best research says we should be doing in the classroom and the ideological commitments that are widespread in, edu- in education, particularly public education. And so when you have that cognitive dissonance, people tend to go with their ideology. They, they don't tend to go with the evidence. Yeah. Because the evidence would have, the, the evidence would be contorted to fit the ideology or evidence that, Evidence that conflicts with the paradigm will tend to be ignored or, or dismissed. Yeah, I, 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 I part think that maybe the problem is actually that the understanding of what is evidence-based. You know, when I, I talk to teachers about what they think evidence-based means, they all often say, well, 
based off researchers, not data, researchers. And they'll cite their favorite scholar in the field and the ideas that person has. And they'll choose that person because that person agrees with them. But they're not really evaluating sure. the evidence. They're picking someone, uh, you know, a, a researcher who shares an opinion with them and then putting that person on a pedestal. Have you noticed sure. this? Sure. And then everything, be, everything ends up becoming research-based because just as long as you have some some researcher that, that advocates for it, then that, by definition, makes it research-based. And then you're right, that's then confused with evidence-based. So uh, this question actually came up from a, a listener recently. What is the difference between research-based and evidence-based? What's the difference? Um, Do you see a difference? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, um, I, mean, I could see how they're used synonymously, but I think research is a broader concept because research can... I mean, research is the process of answering questions based on evidence, right? Mm-hmm. But I think I think a research approach can have a broader uh, range of admissible evidence than what we typically mean in education by evidence based. So, like evidence based in education tends to be focused on quantifiable outcomes, right? And the best the best kinds of quantifiable outcomes or the most reliable quantifiable outcomes are those that are contrasted through you know a, a randomized controlled trial or something approaching that model as purely as possible. So I would think, so I think when we say evidence-based in education, it's, it's, it's a narrower concept of what research-based, the kind of research that's done. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree with, with, with everything you're saying. Um, and it's something we've ended up talking about a lot on this podcast, almost, I think to our own detriment, because it's not the most um, popular topic from our, from our audience. It's not the thing we get the most listens for, but I think, understanding that you know because it's it's finding it's finding good if our audience wants to listen to us and hear what we think is is evidence-based but we want people to be able to evaluate research themselves to make decisions not just you know pick their favorite people to listen to right but at the same time i would i would add that there's a informal aspect to what's evidence-based too i mean if you're trying to run an evidence-based classroom, you're not necessarily dependent on scientists who can run a randomized controlled trial to answer any, every one of your questions. I mean, you as an evidence-based practitioner, you're trying to gather your own evidence in a careful way. And instead of relying on your prejudices and presumptions about your students, you're actually opening your mind to the evidence that, that, that they themselves are creating in the classroom as far as what they're actually learning and how they learn and what they really understand and what they don't, what what's, what you did effectively and what you didn't to help them. And so having an open mind to the evidence generated in your classroom, I think, is also a kind of evidence-based practice. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, way of using evidence. We, we've talked about in the podcast using formative data for that. So using regular formative right. assessments. And then actually recording the results and measuring them to see if students are learning and trying to make adjustments based right. off student learning. Right, and that doesn't have to be a, a, a pure scientific model, right? In order to be useful, it can, okay, it's, it's, the generalizability is limited, of course. But you're not trying to generalize it; you're trying to use it for your own classroom. Yeah. So that itself is valuable. So uh, to change topics a little bit for a second, you run Citizens for Excellence in Public Schools. Could you tell us about this? I do, yeah. It's a it's a small local um, advocacy group for 
um, educational excellence, as the name suggests. Um, really what we try to do is improve school quality by strengthening local accountability for higher achievement. And the way that we get stronger local accountability is through pushing for better transparency and also um, communicating data and outcomes publicly that the school system doesn't communicate or typically don't communicate. So we collect a lot of data from state agencies, for example. Um, for example. Um, so I can right now I'm working with the University System of Georgia, which is all the public colleges and universities in our state. And I'm looking for, we have a publicly funded scholarship called the Hope Scholarship. So I want to know how many of our students retain the Hope Scholarship that go to these colleges and how many retain it after the first year, second year, third year, fourth year, and so on. So I'm getting that data. That's, that's not data that you'll find anywhere on the Internet. It's not published by the Department of Education in Georgia. It's not published by the school system. But it's, it's critical data about how well our students are doing in college. So we'll, we'll get data like that. We'll put it in simple charts and graphs. And then we'll post it on our website. We'll, we'll do many, we'll do miniature reports or public presentations just so the public is aware because the, the greater now, the greater informed the public is, the greater the uh, local accountability will be and the stronger our schools will be in the process. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, part of why we, we founded this podcast is to help other teachers, but part of it was actually also to inform parents who were interested so that they could be aware when they're talking to their teachers of, you know, um, yeah. what is best practice and what isn't. And, that, and that's how you're going to get it. You're not going to get much change from the top down. You know, change, change typically comes more I mean, from the from the bottom up. And so if you want if you want lasting change, stakeholders like parents and teachers and administrators, it can't just be a state agency saying, boom, this is the way we're going to do things. You know, I, I think there is some push for that, for literacy. I especially see that in the United States. I see there's a lot of advocacy groups for more evidence-based education and literacy. I haven't really seen that for math. Uh, have you noticed this at all? In math? Well, have you noticed that there seems to be some um, grassroots advocacy for evidence-based education and literacy specifically in the United States? No, I haven't. I haven't noticed that, no, but I haven't paid attention, so. Oh, fair enough. Um, so, in this, this, so we've been talking a lot about this idea that um, there are practices in education that are not evidence-based. Um, what practices that do you see that are currently popular but are not evidence-based? Sure. Well, so our, our relationship started over the article that I wrote, and that was um, based on the, ed- the education week findings that you have all these methods of teaching reading, which um, systematic phonics are, are neglected. And then a, a related problem, as mentioned earlier, that was explored more by Natalie Rexler's, as you mentioned, teaching abstract comprehension skills. In a way that divorces that from content, such as the domain-specific facts, domain-specific vocabulary. Um, you have a related problem in math and science, as again we talked about in the early years, where there was a focus on abstract critical thinking and problem-solving skills that neglects what students actually know and their their acquisition and long-term retention of fundamental math and science facts. So those are some things we've already kind of touched on. Um, I want to add to that, and this is more closely related to my research. I want to add to these that um, there's a widespread uncritical adoption of online courses in high schools. So if you think about that, and well, let me ask specifically for the purpose of 
of credit recovery. So there's, right at this point, uh, Nate, over 75% of high schools at least are using online courses for credit recovery. And credit recovery is when students have failed a class the first time around and they have to take it again, they have to retake it. But there's no evidence that these students learn effectively in online environments. Um, the, the, the little research that has been done on online credit recovery, all of it shows adverse, adverse effects on student achievement. So yet in spite of this, this has proliferated like wildfire in the United States, where just about everybody is doing it, even though there's no evidence whatsoever that these online courses are actually effective. We know they work for boosting graduation rates, but we there's no evidence that help advance student learning, student, ma- or student reading, student math. So I think that's a big problem. And then I would also add, this is this is probably less known, less understood, but there's a wide, there's I don't know, it's not as widespread, but there's a growing practice of so-called open access to advanced courses, such as advanced placement, mm-hmm. where schools not only just allow any student, but they actively urge students to take advanced courses regardless of their academic readiness. So like in my context, we've had situations where you have kids that are on a middle school reading level that are being urged to take uh, AP English Literature, AP U.S. History, or AP Government, so they don't even have the capacity to read at that level that's required. And this contradicts the well-established cognitive science that cognitive science finding that we cannot acquire new knowledge unless we already have the logically based prior knowledge in place. So those are some additional things that I think are popular trends that are not evidence-based. I think we're we're seeing the adoption of some of that um, here in Ontario right now. The uh, our government is actually pushing for more online courses in high school. Um, although there's been actually a huge uh, backlash to that, thankfully. But uh, that's good. Yeah. 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 There was um, about about ten years ago. There was a book that came out um, called "The Dumbest Generation." Um, goodness, the author's name is escaping me right now. Uh, Mark Bowerman. In this book called The Dumbest Generation, it was talking about just the impact of um, digital technology on the learning of the millennials. Mm-hmm. And there's a chapter in there called Online Learning and Non-Learning. And it was just going through this the, the trend towards online learning. And again, this was 10 years ago. And how there's, again, how there's no evidence to support that online learning is effective. And that there's every reason to think that it won't be effective because when children are put in front of a screen, they're usually distractible. And they're they're used to operating at a low level of cognitive low level of cognitive function, but anyhow, this book was really prophetic because it it saw like sort of where this trend was going, and it said again there's no evidence for it, but yet ten years later we still have more online classes than we've ever had before, and so it's definitely a movement that does not have a really really any evidence base whatsoever. Yeah, I, I was I was talking to John Hattie about this subject in a, a previous episode. Um, and, you know, he really points out the, you know, technology, when he looks at the the data behind it, it seems like a, a low-yield strategy. But part of the problem is, is execution. And I, I, I can certainly see that, you know, online courses does not seem like a, a wise execution of use of technology. And I, I can definitely see in my classrooms how student attention spans are lower than uh, I believe they used to be. But at the same time, I think there are very powerful um, tools within technology that can be used to increase student learning. I think specifically for research, I love to let students um, pull out phones just to, to do research for uh, questions that they have in class. I think that's a great thing. But yes, 
but I, I, I do think that there's been too much emphasis on, on technology. You see these huge pushes to get, you know, iPads and laptops in every classroom. And yet when you look at the technology evidence, it doesn't seem to be a high yield strategy for improving education results. Like with much of education, it's largely based on what's trendy or what wanting to be current or wanting to be contemporary without any, without, again, without any careful consideration of how this is actually going to affect student learning. Yeah, I, I really, I really like the way you put that. I, I, I kind of call it the, uh, the Instagram teaching model, where you're, you're trying to, to look <laughs> impressive but not necessarily actually be effective. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's a really good way to put it. What, what evidence-based practices do you think that should be more widely adopted? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I have a whole lot of new things to add to this question than what your organization has, has done. But besides the ones I already mentioned, I think you've done a good job of distilling them into these basic categories or basic principles of reflective practice, clarity of expectations, appropriately challenging. Um, I'm more interested in, I think, the reasons why we do things like it, it can't just be done because we say it's evidence-based or because it's research-based. Um, we can't just say, well, do this because it's research-based because, like you said, everybody's own preferred pedagogy, they say it's research-based. And if you challenge them on it, they're, they're going to cite research, right? And it's, it's a long process to get them to critically examine, um, the critically evaluate the quality of the research behind it. So it's not just enough to demonstrate that something works, because sometimes it may not work right away. Sometimes its effectiveness is highly context-specific, and that's because it depends on a lot of hard-to-control variables. Um, so I think it's important to be able to persuade that best practices are not just evidence-based, but best practices also harmonize with better principles, with better ideas, ideas that have uh, that are wise. So I think we need to we need to recover this this concept of wisdom in education and wise judgment. So you know the best practices have the weight of a fruitful tradition behind them. The best practices have the weight of experience that's accumulated across generations. And only through tradition can you know really what the long term effects of things are. So I think it's, instead of just saying, "Hey, you need to do this because it's research based or evidence based," we also need to um, challenge people's deep deeply had assumptions showing that the, the defects in their fundamental beliefs and values, showing that there are better beliefs and values that lead to better education. And we need to recover how to engage in this kind of discourse and make it central to the educational conversation once again. Yeah, I, I think you raise a really good point. I think, um, you know, oftentimes when I'm looking through evidence, I'm trying to break things down, but oftentimes it seems like we can just use logic and, and common sense to, to really figure this out. I'll give the example, you know, sometimes people will try to say, well, the best way to improve such and such skill is doing this thing. And I think, no, the best way to improve the skill is by practicing that specific skill. You know, someone's not going to get better yeah. at riding a bike by water skiing, you know? Right, right. I think common sense does go a long way. I think that, that, that resonates with what I'm saying is that we need to recover uh, an element of common sense and good educational intuition, but that requires being in tune with our, our best of our educational traditions. Otherwise we're, otherwise, we're just left with our own limited experience, which can only get take us so far. Let me ask you uh, one final follow-up question, and um, 
So we're, we're talking about the idea that maybe some traditional education practices are better than, than current ones. And, and I agree with you. And I, there's many practices that are more traditional that I think are better. And there's many practices that are more modern that I, I think are very questionable in terms of both their logic and their evidence. But there's, there's some, personally, I would say that, you know, some ed- elements of education from the past that I think can, can be changed and evolved. I'm not, I'm not against any change. Uh, is there any parts, is there any traditional education ideas that you would, you would challenge on? Or are you very much a traditionalist as you see it? Well, any traditional ideas that I would challenge, is that what you said? Any, well, is there any elements of traditional Western education that you would, you would challenge yourself? Sorry, this wasn't a question I sent you in advance. I'm, I'm just right. kind of curious. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's, that's a very, very good question. I think, first of all, like I, anybody should approach tradition with, with humility. That if you're going to give the benefit, that does not give it yourself and your own ideas. You should give it to the tradition. I think, secondly, that that traditions are, they're not dead, but they're living. And so, a tradition should should be. If you're going to rely on a tradition, you should be inhabiting it. And you should be seeking to extend it in an organic way into the future. You shouldn't just be doing blindly what's been done in the past, but you should be trying to figure out well, how do we take these principles of the past and adapt them to the current context. And so, like with that in mind, like I believe that um, in the past there wasn't as much emphasis on preparing people for the workforce. It was more just tra- training people just intellectually without any any regard to practical skills. And you know, the, the people who did the practical stuff didn't really make it make it into high school or definitely didn't make it into college. So I think the fact that we have a different kind of economy where more practical skills are, are there's more advanced practical skills, technical skills that are needed to the education system that, that gives opportunity to, to acquire advanced practical skills. That's not something that's been traditionally done in the past. I'm talking about like hundreds of years ago, not just the recent past. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that one thing that comes to mind. I mean, I think the idea that um, um, that education is more of a conversation, where you sort of like we have to have a way of respecting the, the individuality and diversity of our student body, whereas in the, in the past there was more uniformity and wanting to treat everybody the same. And we just live in a different country now that's more diverse in the United States and in Canada. And so the ways of the past have to respect the diversity of, of our countries and adapt to that. So I think that's another important change that that um, has to be made. Yeah, I would fully agree with that. And in some ways, I think, personally, um, I almost wonder if... I think some of the teaching ideas were really good from the past. Some of the, the teaching methods, but I think some of the the intrinsic curriculum that that accompanied that wasn't always positive. I think in in terms right. of not being diversified in our approach, um, not being a, in, inclusionary, um, and maybe right. being at times too authoritarian, and that that can go too right. far the other way. Don't get me wrong. I'm I think Definitely. sometimes you find that people always want to either be a permissive teacher or an authoritarian teacher. I think you really do have to find that balance, personally. But. Sure, and that's where wi- wisdom is always in balance, right? Wisdom is always in synthesis. It doesn't take wisdom to be on one extreme or another, but that's the tendency of humanity. You know, the the re- reformer and one of my heroes, Martin Luther, 
He said that uh, humanity is like a drunken peasant on a horse. He says he falls off one side of the horse and you help him get back on, and then he falls off the other side of the horse. And so you mentioned the pendulum, like it tends to go back and forth between these extremes because it, it takes no wisdom to, 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 to live and to, to do your job in the extremes. It takes wisdom to have balance, and we get wisdom from tradition, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm advocating that we, that we rediscover in our approach to education. No. I, I have to say, I really enjoyed our conversation um, today. Yeah, it's been great. Um, it felt, uh, I have to say, it felt more like a conversation, less like an interview. And maybe I should apologize for that. My goal was to share your wisdom and your yeah, intellect with our audience. I think you're a very intelligent person, and uh, I, I look forward to, to hearing about your, your PhD when it's finished. Um, but I really want to yeah, thank you for coming on the show. And I will say that that the best interview should should sound like a conversation. You know, I'm doing an interviews based, I'm doing an interview based PhD, and I want the interviews to be good conversations. And it takes a certain skill to get people to to engage in, in that. But when when you get it, you get a lot a lot better insights and, and understandings of people. So I think you did a good job. Well, thank you very much. Well, have a good evening.